As we begin our study this morning, David is faced with a difficult problem of seeking to restore the nation of Israel after Absalom's rebellion and death. It is very hard to put a nation back together after a civil war occurs. Think of our own United States and our own history after the aftermath of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse on April the 9th, 1865. On the evening of April the 14th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, a famous actor and Confederate sympathizer, assassinated President Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. The attack came only five days after that signing and surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. Just five days later, the president was assassinated. And then, of course, there's the long aftermath of reconciliation that was taking place between the North and the South. So what would happen now that rebellion was over, that Absalom had led against David and had failed? How would the nation heal? How would the warring factors come together? How would the country mend after the Civil War? David was now going to face the difficult problem of restoring his kingship and uniting the nation. This was not the first time that David had to bring the nation of Israel together after a transition of power. The first time, of course, came when Saul died and the kingdom was transferred to David. However, the situation was going to be quite different the second time around. And we're going to be highlighting those differences this morning for they are very significant. But as we enter this study, it is quite understandable that people would be divided in their allegiance to David after the rebellion had failed. So we pick up our narrative at that point the division that has erupted. If you look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 19, I'm starting at verse 9. We're going to be doing chapters 19 and 20 this morning, skipping sections of 19 and doing all of 20. 2 Samuel 19, 9. And all the people were arguing throughout the tribes of Israel. So there's the division. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying... The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. So Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Why aren't we bringing David back to being the king? The division that had occurred in Israel was at least in part if not in whole, due to David's own spiritual problems. It was a result of David's own sinfulness that these issues had arised. However, David sought political solutions rather than spiritual solutions to his problems. David relied upon his own cunning and craftiness rather than to seek the Lord's guidance. David did not ask what was just sung about in Maddie's fine uh, ministry and music this morning. 
David did not ask, oh God, what do I do now? Oh God, what do I do now? That was David's great failing at this point. And rather than seek the Lord's guidance, he followed his own cunning, he followed his own mindset, and we're going to see that that had tragic results. So this morning, the theme is the problems that arose due to David seeking political solutions to spiritual problems. First, there is a very striking difference in the way that David established the kingdom the first time around and the way that he was about to establish it this time. On the first occasion, after the death of Saul, David clearly sought the Lord's direction. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, we have this account. After this, that is after Saul's death, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? He said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. What should I do? God told him what to do, and the tribe of Judah anointed David as their king. On this occasion, however, there is no mention at all of David ever seeking the Lord's guidance. Instead, David dictates to the priests what actions they should take. He doesn't inquire, but rather he dictates, looking at verse 9 of our text, 2 Samuel chapter 19. 19, 9. And all the people were arguing throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of the enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Here's the point, verse 11. And King David sent his, this message to Zadok, and Abiathar the priests, say to the elders of Judah, David tells the priests what to say. Why should you be the last in bringing the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? The spiritual and political climate is unhealthy when people, instead of seeking the will of God, rather dictate to the spiritual leaders what they want to have done. David is disregarding the Lord at this point. Secondly, David gives a calculated political response to the people of Judah. David wants to bring the dissenting people on board again in supporting his kingdom. As we pick it up, the ten tribes are now in the fold. The ten tribes are supporting David's kingship once again. But Judah is a holdout. So what's he going to do about that? How is he going to reach out to them, and how is he going to bring them back into the fold? Well, David is going to appeal to them, and all of his appeals are secular in nature. They're not, they're not spiritual. And by the time we get to the end, I'll make that distinction and you'll see clearly what I'm talking about. But David is simply scheming and plotting at this point, 
trying to find a political solution to what is, in essence, a spiritual problem. So what's he going to do? He makes three appeals. First, David appeals to the pride of the elders of Judah. He says, in essence, you don't want to be leader. You don't want to be followers, do you? You want to be leaders. Look at verse 11. And King David sent his messenger to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? Why are you the last? Why is everyone else getting on board before you? What is significant is on the previous occasion, after the death of Saul, the establishment of David first as king, it was the tribe of Judah that was first to recognize David as king. 2 Samuel 2, 4, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. 2 Samuel 2, 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. Then chapter 5, verse 5, At Hebron, he, that is David, reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So it took seven years and six months for the kingdom to coalesce after David the first time around. And the first tribe to recognize David as king was Judah. Now, the second time around, Judah is the last tribe to recognize David as king, as opposed to the first. Next, David appeals to the elders of Judah based on their close family relationship to him. Once again, family raises its head with David. And we were showing how gradually David lost sight of the nation and the people and focused on his family and used his kingdom to advance his family. Well, here we see it in verse 12 of chapter 19. You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. You are the closest to me. He was of the tribe of Judah. So why in the world aren't you supporting me? Again, this is a subtle but significant shift from the way things were done at the first, in the establishment of the first kingdom. On the first establishment of the kingdom, all the people viewed themselves as having a close relationship to David. If you look at verse 12, the key words are, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, when the full kingdom is finally established the first time, listen to these words. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. The exact same words, but this time applied only to Judah. Where the first time it was applied to the entire group of people. So all the people were viewed in this close relationship to David. But now David has a hierarchy. David has established a degree of importance, if you will. Hold that in thought, and we'll see how that plays out. Finally, David's appeal to Amasaw. What will happen to the former general of Joab's army that had led the revolt and was responsible for so many deaths? What's David going to do with Amasaw? Remember, 
Amasaw became the commander, the general of the army under Absalom in the time of the rebellion. 2 Samuel 17, 25. Now Absalom had set Amasaw over the army instead of Joab. So what's David going to do? Well, read verse 13. Say to Amasaw, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. So what does David do? He takes the general of the rebellious army and now places it over and becomes the general or commander of the faithful army and he removes Joab as commander and replaces Amasaw as commander. Now that was a rather strange and political move. Remember, this is not what God has instructed David to do. This is not what God has declared. This is what David thinks is wise. But now think about that for a moment. And perhaps to help you to think about that, think about our own nation. What became of General Lee after he surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse? What happened to General Lee? Well, General Lee was not made the general of the human army. In fact, he did not even continue in military service. Instead, Lee and his family moved to Lexington, Virginia, where he became the president of Washington College. So he left all military service. Don't know if you know this fact or not, but the reason that Lee had to move from his home in Virginia to this home in Lexington, Kentucky, is because in the middle of the Civil War, the federal government had taken over Lee's estate. It no longer belonged to him. It was taken over by the federal government, the people of the North at that time, those following Abraham Lincoln. And in order to kind of desecrate the uh, property, in order to kind of stick it to uh, General Lee in the middle of the Civil War, they started burying Union troops on his land. So just outside his back door, now there were Union soldiers being buried on his property kind of saying, this is all your fault, General Lee. And today, Arlington National Cemetery sits on the estate of Robert E. Lee. That's what happened to his property, Arlington Cemetery. And he goes then to Kentucky and becomes the president of a college. What does David do? David promotes Amasaw to the head of the army. You can imagine that that's not going to go over too well with Joab. Why did 
David do that? The text does not state why he did what he did. And we could surmise that this perhaps was because Joab had disobeyed David's instructions and killed Absalom rather than sparing his life. If you remember, that's where we left off. Uh, David had told Joab to protect his son Absalom, even though Absalom was in rebellion. But Joab killed him, contrary to David's instruction. Maybe this is David's discipline of Joab. We, aren't, we don't, aren't told why, but he's removed. But even if you want to remove David, there were probably better people to set as commander over the army than, than Joab. All of Israel, and especially all of Israel's army, must have really questioned that move, and it was a quandary to them. But what we must keep in mind is what is missing is that David did not appeal to the fact that God had anointed him to be king over Israel. We say that again. What is missing in all of this? As he is telling Judah why they should follow him, he comes up with three different appeals, but he never says, it's because I am the Lord's anointed, because God has established me to be king. That's quite different. In the first time around, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh, familiar terms. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people and shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to King David at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed him king over Israel. None of that happens here. No covenant before the Lord, no mention of the fact that David's the anointed. There's no reference to God at all. It is purely human calculation and secular appeal. Well, David wins the allegiance of Judah, verse 14. And he swayed the heart of the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So they come under the fold. However, that does not end the strife and the division. David wins over Judah, but now loses the support of the ten tribes that he already had for the next section. David's decisions do not lead to hearing, healing, but greater strife. I'm skipping over Mephibosheth and, and uh, Shemai and all that stuff. Uh, I'll come back to it in later weeks when they appear again. And I'll look at it retrospectively. But here, following through in what is taking place, we find that David is making his return to Jerusalem as king. The tribe of Judah played a prominent role in escorting David back to Jerusalem, as did half the people of Israel, verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. However, the rest of Israel feels slighted, verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away 
and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him. Okay, so why is Judah now playing this important role? Why'd you leave us out, is the question. There's this procession that's taking place, a re-inauguration of David as king, and Judah's in the forefront. Most of Israel's completely left out. And so they want to know why. They feel slighted. The people of Judah make their own reply in verse 42. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Here's the answer the men of Judah gave. Because the king is our close relative. In essence, they say, we deserve a prominent place because we are closer relatives to the king. Remember, that is one of the arguments that David had made to bring the tribe of Judah back to him, to win them over. His words were, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. You are important to me. More important than the other tribes of Israel. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But remember on the first occasion, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, then all the tribes of Israel came to David and Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. The first time around, everyone was important. There was no distinction. There was no favoritism. They were all kin. They were all relatives. They all were physically related. They were all descendants of Joseph. Uh, excuse me, Jacob. They were all descendants of Jacob. But David had raised this issue with Judah and now comes back to bite him. Why? He says to Judah, because you're my favorites. So what do they say? We're his favorites. That's why we should be promoted over you. And then secondly, they say, and we have not profited financially from this situation. End of verse 42. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? So the other tribes answer back. First, they should play a larger role because they are more of them. Verse 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. So... You're only one tribe. There's ten of us. So that makes us more important than you because of sheer numbers. But notice the second reason they give. The tribes of Israel should play a larger role because they were the first to talk about restoring the kingship to David. Look at verse 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king, and in David we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? These words. Were we not the first to speak of bringing back the king? Again, David's own words are coming back to haunt him. David said to the tribe of Judah, you are the last to bring me back. The other tribes pick up on that and say, we were the first to bring David back. So shouldn't we be more important? 
Everything that David tries gets turned on its head. The things that David says that he thinks is going to bring about unity actually brings about more strife and division. The matters only get worse. Strife escalates. End of verse 43. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So, more strife, more division. That brings us to yet another encounter where David encounters another obstacle to his kingship. There's another rebellion that's mounted in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, that would be a descendant of Saul, and he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all of Israel, that is the other ten tribes, are now in rebellion against David, Verse 2, so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. David starts out with ten tribes following him and Judah and probably the tribe of Benjamin not following him. And he ends up with, now he's got two tribes and lost ten of them. So he's going backwards. Things are getting worse. Then we have a verse that's almost an aside. It almost seems like a throwaway. And that is that when David returns to Jerusalem, what's he going to do with the concubines that Absalom had slept with in order to humiliate David? Verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines, whom he left to the care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day after their death, living as it is in widowhood. Now remember that that had been a fulfillment of God's judgment that was pronounced by Nathan to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. That happened. So what does David do when he gets back and he meets these, these women? Well, he takes them and he shuts them up. But the point is, there's no mention of David's confession. There's no mention of David's humiliation. There's no mention of David accepting this as God's judgment. He's blind to all that is taking place at this point. He's not taking God into consideration. So now, David summons the army of Judah under the leadership of Amasa to do battle with Sheba and his followers. Verse 4, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. Remember, now he's the general of the army. However, for whatever reason, Amasa procrastinates. Verse 5, So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. So David turns to Abishai who is Joab's brother, to take charge of David's original fighting forces that had come before the king. Verse 6. And David said to Abishai. So he doesn't restore Joab to the kingship, but now he's going to replace, excuse me, he doesn't restore Joab to the general. So he puts the army under Abishai's 
direction, who is the brother of Joab. Verse 6, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. This is worse than what Absalom had done. Verse 18, Now Abishai the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, just showing the relationship there. So Joab goes out under Abishai's authority, verse 7. And there went out from after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Parasites and the mighty men. After him, meaning after uh, Abishai. So Joab is going out, but he's under Abishai's authority. He's not the general anymore. So what happens next? Well, Joab kills Amasa, who was joining up with David's men, verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now remember, he's the one that replaced Joab as the general. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, just a regular soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and a sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entails to the ground without striking his second blow, and he died. So Joab kills his replacement. This rebellious general that David made general to bring peace to the nation, Joab not having any part of that, and so he kills him out of self-interest and desire to have his old position back. Verse 12, And Amasal lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and everyone who came by seeing him stopped. When the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasai out of the way into the field and threw a garment over him. Now everyone recognizes Job as the leader of the army once again. Uh, he gets a battlefield promotion, but not by David. <clears throat> Verse 13, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab. He there is everyone now is following Joab. He got rid of Amasa. And the people immediately showed their allegiance to Joab and Abishai has been replaced. Then we have the long account of Sheba's demise. And I'm just going to highlight that for you. I'm not going to talk about it. Except to say in verse 15, all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maak. That is the... Uh, they were after Sheba, but the point is in verse 15, all the men who were with Joab. They are under his authority and leadership. Well, Sheba dies. Let's jump down to verse 22. Then the women went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. 
I know I went over a lot of stuff slowly, uh, fast, so let me slow down just a little bit and start making the applications here. First, it's important to realize that everything that David had done to improve the situation only made matters worse. First, his appeal to the people of Judah. Why should you be the last to bring me back? Is flipped on its head and upsets all the other Israelites who say, we were the first to bring you back. His appeal to the elders of Israel on the basis of their being closer relatives backfires. He says, you're important to me because you're my bone and my flesh. He said, we're all his bone and his flesh. We're all relatives. Where do you get off thinking you're more important and there's more of us than there's more of you? What David thought was going to bring people together just made matters worse. And the promotion of Amasa over Joab doesn't help matters at all and doesn't achieve what David thought it would achieve at all. And Amasaw ends up dead and Joab ends up as general over the army again. So everything that David tried to accomplish failed. Failed. And yet, the kingdom is restored. And David becomes king. Why? Why? Everything he tried fails. But he still ends up as being king. Answer, because God had promised not to take the kingdom away from David. Because God had said that David would remain as king. And that's why David is king. That's the will of God. And so the kingdom is reestablished. Look at verses 20 through to 26. And these are very important verses, and they're easy to skip over. Verses 23 to 26. Now, now Joab was in command. We have a summary now of the kingship. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Chalcites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ilod, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So here is the leadership. Here's the nation. Here's the restoration of the political power. Here are the leaders. And as we read this account, the first thing we have to ask is, why was Joab now restored as commander over the army? Well, it appears to have been made on a purely pragmatic basis. Again, not consulting God. Whatever the reasons for the demotion, whatever the reasons were that David had removed him for the generalship, didn't seem to matter any longer. It's important to realize that Joab is still not following David's instruction. Joab and David had removed Joab as king, excuse me, as general over the army. Joab reasserts himself in becoming king, uh, excuse me, becoming general over the army. 
Joab is still not following David's instructions. Joab was removing an obstacle to his own advancement. Why was such behavior rewarded? <laughs> Why did David take this mutiny and forget about it and say, okay, you're the king. I mean, excuse me, you're the general now. Well, I guess we could say he got the job done. But he got the job done the first time uh, in defeating Absalom. It, it, it's hard to understand. We must wonder, is it because David did not have the power or the will in and of himself to remove Jacob? Uh, excuse me, to remove Joab. Was, was David afraid of Joab? If it was, then it's singular that David, who is not afraid of Goliath, is afraid of his own general. Whatever the case, whatever the case, we'll see what happens to Joab in weeks to come. David's kingship had been restored. There is a summation of the leadership in the kingdom that is bookends for the particular portion of the kingdom's history that we are in. That's important to realize. If you keep your finger here, I just invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. And I want you to see the similarities. 2 Kings chapter 8. In 2 Kings chapter 8, this is the summation of David's kingship finally being established after Saul's death. This is the first time around. And notice how 2 Samuel chapter 8 reads, starting at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahihud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Abitab, uh, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was the secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. So you have a similar summation in chapter 19. Excuse me, chapter 20. Where it says, now Joab was commander of the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was commander of the Chelsites and Pelethites. And if you read those two summations, they are very similar. They're very similar. The kingdom's reestablished. Virtually the same people were in charge. But though the same people were in charge, things are very, very different. There are some significant differences in these two lists. Let me point two of them out to you. First has to do with David's priests. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 17, it reads as follows. And Zadok the son of Ahitub and Abimelech the son of Abiathar were priests. And then in verse 18, it reads, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Chalcites and Parathites, and David's sons were priests. Now, it would seem that these two priesthoods are, are different in the sense that the, the first priests that are mentioned are the priests of the covenant. They'd be the ones that are doing all the priestly duties with, with the sacrifices and all of that. When it says that David's sons were priests, those are his own spiritual advisors. Those, those, that's the relationship that David had to his sons. He's looking to his sons for spiritual leadership and guidance. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, 
verse 25. It reads, And Sheba's secretary and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. That's familiar to us. Verse 26, In Ira the gyrite was also David's priest. So one of the significant differences is that David's sons as priest has been replaced by Ira. Now who's he? I'll get to that in a few weeks. Just put that in the back of your mind. That's significant. But what I want to point out to you at this moment is that David's sons aren't his priests. Which tells us one of two things. Even, either David lost confidence in his sons as spiritual leaders. Or his sons lost respect to their father in terms of wanting to be his spiritual advisors. Probably both. Probably both. But my point is that the spiritual relationship of the family at this time has totally broken down. Totally broken down. And that's why all of these battles and strife and everything's going on. But you see, the, the biggest problem here is a spiritual problem. David not seeking God's guidance. David's not seeking God's direction. David not recognizing what the real issues are. Why this rebellion is actually taking place. And failing to understand this breakdown of the spiritual aspects of the family. The uh, second notable difference is what's different about the kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, the kingdom is, is uh, summarized with these words. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Two weeks ago, I traced through justice and equity and how that was not being manifested in David's kingdom. Now the kingdom is reestablished, but that important line is missing. The kingdom's been established, but not with justice and equity. Not in the right way. And the kingdom was not going to be administered with justice and equity. There was injustice and inequity all over the place. And we should certainly have been able to see some of that this morning as we looked at how David's scheme worked out. So the kingdom is restored, but it's a far, far different kingdom. Even though it has many of the same leaders, the spiritual nature of the kingdom has declined immensely. So the kingdom was restored in substance, but not in essence. The kingdom now, though outwardly looked very much the same, was in fact a very different kingdom. The same leaders were in charge, however, the same leaders have changed significantly. David, though he was king, was a different king. It doesn't just matter who's in charge but their moral character matters. So what takeaways can we make from this in our own day and age? Well, first, let us not seek political solutions to spiritual problems. Let us understand how our spiritual faith, our trust in God, our belief in the gospel, 
affects our political views. Especially as we see them as solutions. As we read about social injustice, as we read about racial inequality, what's the answer to that? As believers, the answer is the gospel. The gospel. For if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. In him, there's neither bond nor grief. Jew nor free. Male nor female. In the body of Christ, we are equal. We are a people of God. Mutually caring and concerned for all of us who we understand as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And it doesn't matter our color. It doesn't matter rich or poor. It doesn't matter our political affiliation. If we're the people of God, we are one. And that's what unites us. And that's what causes us to care for one another. And that's what's going to ultimately bring peace and prosperity to this world. It will be the Lord's return that is going to cause every weapon to be beaten into plowshares for swords and killings to cease. The answer is a spiritual answer. And as the church, we can never lose sight of that. We're looking to God. So how does that play out practically? Well, first and foremost is our call to worship says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's our ultimate confidence, God. And so we pray to him and we trust in him. And we see that the gospel truly addresses the social needs, the economic needs of our world. And we seek those solutions. But what does it say about us politically? Well, first of all, let us pray for our leaders and the decisions they are making. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for our leaders and the decisions that they make, that they are going to be just and right decisions so that we can live at peace and we can live godly lives so that our consciences are not violated and our lives are not interrupted and our worship can be open and clear. Pray for our leaders and the decisions that they make. Secondly, let us pray for the salvation of our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleasing in the sight of our God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Meaning all classes of people. He's concerned about the poor. He's concerned about the rich. He's concerned about the underling. And he's concerned about the king. So we ought to be praying for the salvation of our leaders. That they would come to know Christ. What a difference. What a difference if those that would be reigning over us would have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. 
Let us see that as a solution. Let us see that as a primary motivating force in our prayers and in our relationship and working with others. Thirdly, pray that our saved leaders, governed out of a heart of faith and obedience to the Lord, that they do not fail to seek God's direction. They have the boldness and confidence to obey the Lord. That they put their trust in Him and not in men. It isn't just that they are saved, but they're living in keeping with that wonderful, transforming grace and power of God. David was saved, if you will. David at one time was such a, an incredible leader and godly example, but David turned his eyes away from God, and what a difference it made. Not just for David, not just for his family, but for the kingdom and for the world. So let's pray for our leaders that truly are born again, that they would act consistently with their faith, their values, and not fear men, but fear God. Let's pray for that. And then lastly, let's not just pray for our political leaders, but let us pray for all our leaders including our church leaders. For as we see in David, God's people are not immune to losing sight of God in exercising leadership with respect to God's people. It's easy to get to a place where you look for pragmatic solutions to difficult problems. Let's pray that we would never lose sight of the importance of seeking the mind and will of God above all things. That that's the basis of our making decisions. That's the basis of seeking to restore peace, of bringing divisions together. It's not about brainstorming about all the different ways in which you can appeal to people and their baser motives in order to bring them together. What's going to bring God's people together is a united commitment to Jesus Christ. He is our cement. He is our glue. It's our commitment to him, which is the basis of our commitment to each other. I can never change. I can never change. So let us pray that God would grant us unity as a people of God based on our mutual commitment the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation is always present to be looking for dramatic solutions to spiritual problems. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us, first as a people of God, to be committed to seeking you as the solution to not only our personal needs, but our world's needs. And, oh, Lord, as we think about our political leaders, may we view our leaders through the eyes of the Scriptures. And, Lord, help us, instead of debating and instead of arguing, instead of being divisive, 
And instead of putting our trust in particular leaders, Lord, help us to pray that you would sovereignly over turn the minds and hearts of our leaders that they would seek what is truly just and right and not be motivated by lesser means. And Lord, help us to see if that's really going to be accomplished in the fullness and the depth of which we all hope it would be that it means that they're going to have to come to faith. So Lord, help us on a regular basis to pray for our leaders nationally, locally, all those in authority, that you'd be pleased to bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would have a different dimension, a different outlook, a different perspective that comes through faith in you. And then lastly, O oh God, help us to pray that those who do know you would act consistently with their faith, that they would have the courage to stand up against the onslaught of people and the rebellious nature of individuals. Help them simply to do what is right so that it can be said that they are leading with equity and justice. Help us, help our own church that we would seek your will above all things, that we would find our direction to come from you and your word, that we would not seek pragmatic solutions to difficult problems. And Lord, keep us from dividing our lives into that which is secular and that which is spiritual. For Lord, all of life is spiritual. All of life is governed under your authority. All of life is to bring honor and glory to you. And so all problems are spiritual problems. And we never lose sight of that. And may we seek you as the answer to them all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.